Welcome to Signals Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by Signals, an AI marketing platform that helps companies automate, grow, and close sales pipeline. Today, we're diving deep into the world of AI, demystifying the connections that define our digital age as we share presentations from the AI Revenue Summit. For this episode, our speaker, Daniel Engelbretson, Chief Customer Officer at Kronos, will discuss Shaping Your Point of View, the Significance of Artificial Intelligence. We hope you enjoy. All right. Thanks for joining me at the AI Revenue Summit 2023. I'm really excited to share with you this topic on Shaping Your Point of View, the Significance of Artificial Intelligence. My whole goal for this presentation is to give you some food for thought for how you can shape up your own point of view on AI and its significance to you and to your business. And to do that, we're going to run through eight questions that I think you should ask yourself, where you should kind of go get the answer for yourself to help you shape up that point of view. And this is here. This is how I went about doing it. So let's jump in. Before we get started, just a quick intro about me. My name is Daniel. I have uh, been running a business for the last about four years. I founded it in 2019. And in that time, I learned a ton about building and scaling businesses and some of these critical questions. And uh, currently my role at the company is chief customer officer. And I won't forget the first uh, exit interview I did with a client where they um, turned in their, their notice, we're on retainer, and cited uh, generative AI as one reason for the departure. And that was a real eye-opener for me several months ago already now as to the power and the speed at which generative AI is already coming into the market and disrupting what I do professionally. Beyond that, I spent 10 years building and scaling demand generation teams for Fortune 500 lean manufacturing, and I did a stint for a few years in VC-backed high-tech startups. So I've, I've kind of run the gamut in terms of large, huge companies with lots of bureaucracy and big teams and 100 marketers on the team to small, nimble, fast, well-funded, VC-backed, uh, and kind of seen how, how these types of things play out. And lastly, I got my MBA in 2016 and uh, focused on analytics, took some predictive and statistics, because I saw at the time predictive being a really important facet of MarTech and, and what I was doing in demand generation, and before that in uh, marketing and economics. So I just wanted to give you a flavor of my background, really, so that you'd have a point of view on where, where I'm coming from as we tackle this. So the first question I'd put to you is, how is AI currently transforming the business landscape? This is what I think you should ask yourself about your business's landscape. The first thing I'd really point out is that AI-centered companies are already dominating. I think one fallacy today is to fall into the trap that AI is somehow new, that, that when ChatGTP dropped out at the beginning of this year or end of last year, that that was kind of the beginning of AI. And the reality is that AI-centered companies have been building and deploying AI strategies for over a decade. And, and depending on what you read and how you want to think about the beginning of AI, it, it dates clear back to the 70s uh, with the, the space race of uh, the 60s. So, so the main point here is that across so many industries, computing, advertising, entertainment, retail, hospitality, transportation, AI-centered companies have already just totally dominated and transformed those markets. So the main point to take away is that that AI is here and is already dominating. And if your business doesn't already have an AI-centered uh, point of view or an AI-centered strategy, or at least a grasp on how AI could potentially disrupt your space, then now is the time to get your arms around that. 
And on each one of these slides as we run through, you'll see at the bottom left where I put in different reading recommendations or learning recommendations. And I found Competing in the Age of AI a really compelling uh, book for, for this topic. Question two, what are the opportunities and the threats? This is what you'd want to know. So out the gate, AI is a $4.4 trillion opportunity, according to McKinsey. Yeah, I've seen this number as high as 20 or 30 uh, trillion dollars in the, in the global GDP. I think there was one from uh, PwC that, that got that high. And overall, there's just massive, there's no doubt that there's massive economic potential of generative AI and AI in general. And so in this conversation, we're going to switch between generative and AI and NLP, and I've got a slide that's going to talk about that. But in this case, we're talking about generative AI, which is kind of where your chat GPTs and, and your mid journeys and things like that fall. So there are four key areas where people like McKinsey see opportunity, customer operations, marketing and sales, software engineering, and R&D. Those aren't the only areas. Those are just kind of the prevailing, prevailing areas where a ton of that, I think it was something like 75% of that productivity gain is going to come from. The second thing to point out is that it is going to require investment to take advantage of that generative AI opportunity. And we're going to talk about that in this deck today. And the last thing I'd really point out about this is that the era of generative AI is really just beginning. You know, with the kind of easy access that ChatGPT brought at the beginning of this year and all other tools that have come alongside it, people are only just getting their hands around how to build it and deploy and integrate this with their business. So I definitely recommend checking out the McKinsey study. There's also one from PwC that was pretty good that dives into that pretty hard. But for you and your business, I would say it's all about the value case. Just like any other investment that you're gonna make at your business, any other leadership decision or strategic decision you're trying to make, you're trying to understand what's the value? Why should I put my resources into that? And in this case, I would argue that, that using new technology to, should you should be using new technology to enable novel or more effective business strategies. And in so doing, make sure you understand where you're trying to go and why you're trying to go there even if you're just trying to run that pilot. Sometimes with new tech, particularly blazing fast tech like generative AI, we go all in on the tech and we just want it, want it, want it, and we don't necessarily slow down to understand where should I be applying it. So to dive harder into that, I definitely recommend jumping in on the technology fallacy like that's cited down on the bottom left. You know, so thinking about some of the, the risks associated to your business, uh, aside from just the opportunities, I really like framing this up in the triple constraint um, triangle that we have over here. This is from Project Management. And, and this kind of just hit me as I was reading uh, the AI Superpower book on the bottom left. You know, it really comes down to, in your business, what drives competitive differentiation basically comes down to, is your product good? Is it cheap? or is it fast, or some combination of those three things. And you often hear things like it can be good and fast, or good and cheap, but it can't be all three. You know, how often have you heard that type of phrase? And that that's a pretty widely uh, cliched, held, or stated statement. And what I would tell you is that with generative AI and AI in general, there has never been a tool set that has more potential to more dramatically impact all three points on that triangle, good, cheap, and fast, than generative AI. And it, it, the reason why it transcends industries and the reason why this matters from manufacturing to food service to construction 
to you know tech, which is where people typically think about AI, is because at its core, productivity and the and the productivity of your company overall basically comes down to those measures and AI can have an impact on all three of those measures at the same time. And so as you're thinking about that in the context of your business, one important thing to, to, uh, to keep in mind is the idea of competency traps or this idea that just because you've been good at doing business in a certain way historically doesn't mean the way that you're doing business now will continue to be good in the future. So said another way, it's very possible that even if you don't know or aren't thinking about this right now, one of your competitors is. And beyond that, particularly if, you're, if your industry is really tech heavy, there could be entire new competitive competitors entering the market way faster than before with way different competitive advantages because of the speed at which AI, generative AI, is allowing people to start and grow businesses. So as you're doing that, you're able to move faster with less resources and get a higher quality result and that comes down to intaking, transforming, and processing information. So one thing to point out also is that one of the key productivity drivers in that McKinsey study was related to the work activities that, that are about kind of understanding and processing with natural language, that those tasks of like, okay, I got this information, now I'm going to query that information doing whatever I do and pass that information to the next system, that effort is currently taking 25% of your team's productivity to do that in their in their day-to-day -day life, which could theoretically be either eliminated or largely automated with AI applications. So that's how you should think about framing up the risk uh, to your business from basically the market uh, if you don't build a strategy around this. And we're gonna talk a lot more about this as we get into it. And just to kind of drop it one more time, if this is particularly interesting to you, I highly recommend that book, AI Superpowers. <clears throat> the third question I would encourage you to jump in on is what is generative AI and how does it work? A lot of topics, particularly in executive circles, you don't have the time to really dive into. That's why you pay other people to dive into those topics. Easy ones to reference are gonna be things like legal or um, accounting. Right? You have professionals with many years of experience and certifications that you can rely on and you can trust that their work is good and you don't need to understand the frameworks or the decisioning or the, or the knowledge base that got the answer that was the answer. That's why you pay that expert. So you as an executive may not spend any time on those functional areas because it's not worth it to you spend the time. My point of view is that generative AI and AI as a whole is a set of capabilities that transcends any one department or skill or function that you as an executive really need to get your arms around what exactly is this and how does it work so that you can be informed or as you might would say digitally literate on generative AI and AI so that you can kind of sniff test is this BS is this real is this something I should focus on and it's really hard to do that without a fundamental grasp of what it is, isn't, and how it can impact your business. That's why you should take the time to understand it for yourself by following these eight questions and coming out to the other side and then making a decision, do I care? Or do I just want to pay somebody to take care of this for me? So I really like this quote. I was reading this book from Stephen Hawking recently. The ability to adapt based on circumstance is in and it of itself intelligent. 
that was Stephen Hawking's quote on AI and kind of the debate as to whether AI is intelligence or not. And his point of view as expressed in this book was that if the AI can interpret information and take action on it and learn as a result of it, that it's demonstrating intelligence. So depending on how you want to break down intelligence, some people will argue, oh, AI is not a human intelligence replacement, etc. And there's a lot of nuance to that. But I think we can all agree that Stephen Hawking was one of the brightest minds of our time. And I really like how he broke down this question and this point of view uh, in his book, Brief Answers to the Big Questions. And I would encourage you to kind of run with the assumption, at least for now, that artificial intelligence is here to replace in some way or parts human intelligence. But let's not get hung up on that right now because we're going to come back to that. <clears throat> the next thing I want to touch on is overlapping opportunity. Sometimes you see these terms interchangeable when you're talking about AI. I've even been talking about generative versus AI and things like that. And, I, and there was even a slide in here already on NLP. So what, what is that? Well, NLP or natural language processing is a field related to AI and science in general, uh, where it basically governs or sets up a framework or field of study around how can we speak to machines the way we speak to each other and get the result that we want. Historically, so much time, energy, money has been put into like basically conforming to what you need to, to, to be able to speak to the machine and the way that the machine speaks. But today, and moving forward into the future, there's tons of time and energy off the back of this tech that's making it such that anyone can speak to the computer any way that they want, as long as they know what they're after, and the computer can interpret that and go do that. Massive implications because former, former fields of study that would require really nuanced education and, and skill with particular application can, can rapidly be overcome by people who may not have that niche skill or niche experience, but do understand the problem they're trying to solve and how to go about doing that. The second one is GPT or generative pre-trained pre -trained transformers. And this is getting into generative AI in general. So things like ChatGPT or MidJourney or Stable Diffusion or Llama or all these other ones that are out there are models that are built off of tons of information that they've crunched that based on what you put into it, it predicts what it should say back to you. And so that's a large, large language model and it's, it's what's kind of the buzz right now. And the main thing to understand about it is that it's not really intended to be a knowledge source. It's intended to be a predictor of what should come next. And we're gonna talk more about that on the next slide. Then there's artificial intelligence overall, the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks that normally require human intelligence. And some of the best examples of this are tasks that not only require human intelligence, but also human intelligence at a scale that's just not feasible, like big data. You know, you can't really have a human go through a million rows of data, but you can have a machine do it with human intelligence. So that's a great example of how to think about that. What we are not talking about is AGI or artificial general intelligence. And when you read all the hype out there around the earth is going to end and humanity is going to be destroyed and the machines are taking over and all the, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff that's out there, they're talking about AGI. And while AGI may or may not be real, I'm not here to debate that at all. Uh, what is important to take away is that it's not real today. It does not exist today. And there's no 
credible indication that it's going to exist tomorrow. There's just theory and kind of logic that suggests that it will. The only reason why I make that distinction now is because all of that hype around the end of the world is talking about AGI, and AGI is not actually here today, and that is not what I'm talking about in the context of this presentation whatsoever. So let's talk about what generative AI isn't, and I think this is a really important point. Large language models, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, are good at saying what an answer should sound like, which is different from what an answer should be. So it will say, you can say, hey, what is, what is the color of the sky? And it will come back and say, oh, the color of the sky is blue, blah, 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 blah. But if you were to say, oh, sometimes the sky is green, purple, pink, what is the color of the sky? It might come back and say, oh, the color of the sky is green. Because it's taking a cue from what you said and saying back to you something that logically makes sense. But that's not the answer, right? That's not a right answer. And it's just a very simple demonstration of it's not necessarily going to give you the right answer. It's going to give you an answer that makes sense based on what it was asked and based on what context it was given. So to get successful outcomes, it really depends on the inputs, the framework that you give it to answer that question, and the guidance that you give it that the AI uses to execute that task. So what's that body of knowledge that it's acting on, that data that you've fed it, What's the process to intake, transform, and react to that information? So that's kind of the prompt or the prompt engineering that you're doing around that. And what does that mean ethically and morally and strategically in the context of the boundaries you're putting around that uh, pre-trained model and that, ex that generative execution? And that really comes down to your point of view. What you decide is ethical or morally right or strategically important is really for you to decide. Now, uh, there's some basic laws of society that people generally agree on, but even some of the most fundamental ethics and moral questions, we have a lot of strife over. So the, the, the challenge here is that you need to understand this enough to be able to apply your own moral and ethical compass to it. Otherwise, you are relying on someone else's moral and ethical compass, which may be good enough for you in some circumstances, but may not be in others. And that is a real risk to you and to your business. So I'm going to hit this example really fast and I'm going to carry it through the presentation. And I, I like this example because it's so basic and it's so simple. <clears throat> and the example is, how do you, if I was to ask you, how do you brush your teeth? How would you answer that question? Like if I said, I need you to write me a guide on how to brush your teeth so I can go brush my teeth. You might say, well, I pick up my toothbrush and I brush my teeth. Or you might say, well, I pick up my toothbrush, I put my toothpaste on, I put some water on, I put it in my mouth for a minute, and I'm done. Or you might say any number of steps. The reality is that there's probably a thousand steps that go into how you brush your teeth. And that includes the tips that you've learned, oh, should I go circular or up and down, the tools that you use, like do I use an electric toothbrush or a manual toothbrush, or do I use firm toothbrush or a soft toothbrush? The warnings that you might say, which is like, hey, don't press down too hard or make sure you do this Monday every morning and every afternoon and every evening or whatever that is. The technique you use, how long you go, do you start at the top or the bottom or whatever. And the credibility of the sources, like what dentist told you that you should use this toothpaste or that toothbrush or this method. You know, all of that drives how you distinctly brush your teeth. And how I brush my teeth is very likely to be different from how you brush your teeth when you break it down to that nuance. Yeah, we can all say pick up the toothbrush and brush your teeth. And in the case of brushing your teeth, maybe that's all you really need to say because there's not enough differentiation between how I do it and how you do it. 
for there to be any value created there, but you can easily apply this to anything that you know how to do well and think about, all right, how many steps is it? And if you wanted to replicate that with AI, how far down that path would you have to specify to get the AI to do it the way that you do it? And so the point of view I'd like you to take on this in the, in the context of this conversation is, if you were to literally write literally every step, minute detail of the process that you use to brush your teeth and program a robot to come brush your teeth, who brushed your teeth? And my point of view is that you brushed your teeth you just used a better toothbrush to do it. But if you don't write down those steps and you just go out to YouTube and you grab a video that says how to brush your teeth for a six-year-old boy and you feed that to your model and then the bot brushes your teeth the same way that guy brushes teeth, who brushed your teeth? Artificial intelligence brushed your teeth because you didn't actually understand what went into that or how they did it or why and maybe you don't have the prerequisite knowledge to even critique whether that was the right way to brush your teeth or not. That's, that's the kind of frame of reference I want you to hold on to in this conversation. While it seems super basic, it's really easy to get your head around that example. Question four then is, AI has the potential to disrupt traditional job roles. What are ways to position them as improvements for the workforce? There's three considerations I want you to first start with as you're attacking this question. First, biggest opportunities lie with worker productivity. The disruption is less about eliminating roles and more about taking the kind of boring, mundane tasks out of your day-to-day -day and having more time to do the deep work or the critical work that we as humans would rather be doing anyway. And when you look back at that McKinsey study, a ton of that value that's being created, that $14 trillion of value, is not in eliminating roles, it's in getting your people more time to do more valuable work. The second piece to consider is that 65% of a workday is absorbed by work that could be, the AI could automate. So that's huge, right? Like if you think about how much better your life will be if you don't have to read all your emails or listen to all your voicemails or whatever, whatever that mundane task is because you have a bot that is in, uh, in taking all the information, compressing it into what you need and giving you just what you need to take action or maybe even taking the actions for you. And the last point is that white collar job disruption is real. Uh, I think I think there's all this fear out there of, oh, we're gonna lose our jobs. And then you have all this noise out there. Oh no, robots aren't gonna take our job. Robots are absolutely eliminating roles for sure. But that doesn't necessarily mean they have to eliminate the people. But you can already look at the uh, uh, national labor, labor statistics and you can already see in the reporting where they're citing for the first time artificial intelligence as a reason for job loss. It is definitely happening. But that's more of a, in my opinion, and what a lot of other people believe in the research is that is more of a short-term uh, problem. These people are still valuable and still have valuable skill sets, but the way that those skill sets are deployed or the, or the functions are actually executing that day-to-day -day will be different. Because if 65% of your workday is mundane stuff that gets automated, and you have two people doing that and you just drop 65% of that, you may not need that second person. And that's just a reality of it. I'm not here to debate whether you should or shouldn't be eliminating roles for AI. It's just a reality that it is already happening. So, so that's one of the ethical considerations we're gonna jump into later in this deck. And then the last point I'll make on that is that customer operations, marketing and sales, software engineering, and R&D is where uh, McKinsey at least sees the most disruption 
uh, of white collar jobs. So positioning this to your employees, obviously that's not, that's not the best way to position to your employees at last point. The, 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 the second point really is more around positioning your employees of, of just basically dropping work that, that's no fun. But I think another point of view on this, I really like this TED talk uh, about how uh, the one of the main powers of AI and generative AI is person-centered tutoring and the value that person-centered tutoring can bring. And this is in the context of ed education, which by the way, again, this is a phenomenal TED talk, I highly recommend it. But beyond that, uh, that piece of it, uh, if, you, if you apply that in the business, imagine if every one of your employees had a tailored bot for that person's role and background and tenure that they could just ask that bot a question without fear of any reproach, without fear of anybody making fun of them, without fear of any political blowback. They could ask that question of that bot and that bot gave them the answer. How much more efficient would that make your warranty support center employee or your customer success manager or your sales guy who didn't, who didn't read the last press release? You know, how much more effective is that gonna make them at their job? So the power of empowering your staff is just incredible on the back of generative AI and AI platforms. And this was uh, from Khan Academy. The next point I'll make on this is digital skills half-life. You know, you'll have to forgive the picture I took of my phone of that because that was the only place I could find that graph and that's from the technology fallacy page 113. But the point I want to make on this slide is the World Economic Forum research in 2000, a World Economic Forum, Forum research in 2017 said that the half-life of a skill is five years, which means that if you learn a thing and you use it in your job and you leave that job for five years and you come back half, of what you learned previously will still be relevant. That's what that means. In 2000, by 2001, IBM had already cut that down to 2.5 years. And in this survey, 90% of respondents, it's the right audience, I'm not gonna get into that right now, it's the right audience for this conversation, reported less than a year in a digital environment. Less than a year. So this book is about digital transformation as a whole, which I would argue AI is most definitely a part of. And so the point really here is, skills need to continue to be developed to stay relevant in this space. And your company not only will not be able to keep up if you're not developing your staff, but your best staff will absolutely leave your company to go somewhere else if they perceive they're falling behind in what they need to know to remain competitive in their field. And my point of view is that AI is something you need to know and understand to remain competitive in your field whatever that field may be. It may not be super hypercritical today in every field, but it's coming, it's coming. And universities are already cranking out courses and learning and students who are getting exposure to this at age like 19 and 20, right? These people are gonna come into the workforce and they're gonna know. And your staff, your early adopters are already using this in their day-to-day -day life. And if they perceive that your company is not taking this seriously, there's a real risk to you that they're gonna go somewhere that is taking it seriously because they're scared that if they don't take it seriously, they're not gonna be able to succeed. And that's a very real thing. So one way to position this with your employees is the age old, you know, the, the, what's the phrase where it goes like, well, what happens if I train these people when they leave? And then the guy responds, well, what happens if you don't train the people when they stay? That's exactly what I would apply here. 
you've got to get your people access to opportunity to understand the impact so that you can uh, you can motivate and instill and encourage that innovative mindset that's gonna let you find those business cases. Last point I'll make on this before moving on is how many times did we hear over the years that truck driving is going away? Truck driving is going, trucks are gonna be automated. There's so much, there was so much noise around truck driving going away. And six or seven years ago, there are predictions that by now they would all be self-driving. Well, they're not all self-driving and now there's a mass shortage of truck drivers. So the point of this is just, there's a lot of hype. Some things are gonna get disrupted. Some things aren't gonna get disrupted faster than others. And so the point is you gotta, you gotta remain logical and you've gotta remain rational about this, but that doesn't mean you should ignore it. And the kind of final point on that is if one of your competitors is getting out in front of you on this, the speed at which AI gets those gains on that triangle is so fast, but that by the time that you're able to observe it, you're going to be you're, you're going to be way behind in that. So you can't wait to see this in your market. You've got to assume that someone in your market is already applying this and you need to get out in front of it so that you don't get blown away like so many companies have been blown away on that first slide when you look at all the disruption across those eight or so industries we had on that first slide. So if you like this, I highly recommend reading this article, Just Calm Down about GPT-4 already. It's, it's a really good one. Question five, how can businesses strike the right balance between automation and human decision-making to achieve optimal outcomes? The first way I would encourage you to think about this is uh, the, looking at this workforce of the future graphic from Tim Sanders at uh, Upwork. And uh, basically his, his point of view articulated in this podcast episode was around your companies will have these core teams of staff. And this is already happening today in digitally, digitally focused companies. And then they, then they will have kind of an extension of their staff that's contract or gig workers or kind of part-timers or offshore that are kind of doing around the periphery of that full-time staff. And in the future, there will be generative AI doing tasks for your business, generative AI employees, if you will, doing that work for your business. And the point of view here is that the, the composition of your workforce is going to change and it will include generative bots doing pieces of that work. Some of the most common already adopted solutions out there are like the chatbots on your website answering support questions or product questions or customer success questions. You know, it's not a real human behind that answering those questions. So, so first, the first thing to answer is what are the business opportunities for your business? And the second is what are the existential threats in your market? And we frame that up a little bit with that triangle a few slides back, but this isn't really, there's no magic answer here. There's no magic bullet. There's no one book that you can read because it's so specific to you, your business and your industry which is why you need to get your head around these topics so that you can answer the question of what is the business opportunity and what are the existential threats. Then beyond that, then you're looking at how could this be deployed, how should it be staged, and how can you piece that strategy together? But before you go down that path, you've got to understand what that workforce is gonna look like. So the reason why this is uh, important to be considering is because before you could really understand that balance between automation and human decision making you have to you have to understand also that at least my point of view is there's never going to be a world where there's no human involved you need the human involved but there is going to be a world where these periphery tasks that no human really wants to do anyway because they, they they're super mundane are going to be totally eliminated and 
work that is important. And I don't wanna say humans don't wanna do it. It's an important part of the process. But if you're super skilled and you've been doing it a long time, let's say you're an accountant, a tax accountant, and you're looking at somebody's financials and, and all their documentation, you're trying to prepare a return, you really need a high degree of confidence that this information is being intook properly and applied properly. But if you had a path where the intake of that information and the check of that information was automatic and you trusted it, imagine how much better your life would be as an accountant and apply that to so many other things. Last point I'll make on this is there's so much buzz around prompt engineering and understanding the tools and this fear of getting behind on the tools. And I think a really critical point of view expressed here is that the speed of innovation is so fast here in this space that prompt engineering and the tools that are going to take advantage of generative AI are coming so fast that there's diminishing returns of how much time you put into really mastering prompt engineering. But there will never be diminishing returns on mastering framing a problem. You will always need to understand what is the problem I'm trying to solve? How should I go about solving that? Or at least how do you go about attacking problem solving? And how do I verify that the result of that problem solving was a good result? You will always need to know that. Humans will always need to know that. But the execution of that is what's gonna go a lot faster. And the robustness of that is gonna go a lot faster. And the quality of that is gonna go a lot faster. So that's why Focus, your focus needs to be on understanding how to frame the problems that matter and understanding how those tools go about solving those problems so that you can be more focused on identifying the problems that should be solved with AI and not so much in the weeds of solving the problem. You can leave that to the engineer. But the point I will make is if you don't understand those fundamentals, it goes back to you're trusting someone else's moral an ethical and risk compass in making the decision for you. So if this is critical, how much do you wanna trust someone else's? How much do you wanna trust the engineer at product company ABC's moral compass versus your own or risk assessment or ethics assessment? It just depends, it totally depends. If you're talking about brushing your teeth, maybe you don't care at all. But if you're talking about you know litigation or something like that, maybe you care a lot. So, so I would highly encourage reading this article, AI Prompted Engineering is in the Future. It's a great dive into this topic. Question five, what are the risks, ethical, moral, and legal considerations? So I would really encourage you to check out this blueprint for AI, for an AI Bill of Rights. Uh, this was put out, uh, I think earlier in the year, this year, 2023. And there's a podcast out there uh, with, Ez with Ezra Klein and uh, uh, Alondra Nelson, who's pictured here on the slide diving into what this is. And what I really took away from it was it was a really constructive conversation on how to anchor all our values as a society in the best outcomes for human beings. And this idea that systems should be safe, you should have privacy around your data, and algorithms shouldn't be used to discriminate against you. Different people have different points of view on political, on politics and regulation and things like that. I'm not trying to make this a political conversation today at all. I'm trying to make this a conversation of this blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights is a really great document to get your gears turning on how to think about 
this frame, this regulatory framework and the problems that regular, regular, regulatory bodies are trying to solve for so that you can develop your own opinion on that. And if you don't want to read the 70 page document, this podcast is a great docu- a great podcast to really get your, your arms around that. Last point I'll make on this before I move on is really, really to make the point that you do not have to be doing anything nefarious and you don't have to have any nefarious intentions to accidentally build a model that is biased or discriminatory or any other questionable, gray, negative, ethical or moral problem that you might be facing. And, and to, to demonstrate this, I, I want to go back to the toothbrushing example. Let's say that the way you trained your bot to brush your teeth was off YouTube videos that you found on YouTube that explain how to brush teeth. But let's just say that you were on your kid's account and you didn't realize it and all the videos you pulled down were videos for six-year-old boys. Like, and then you fed all these six-year-old boy videos in 50, 100 of those videos and it built a model around that information. It trained its model on that information because that was the information that was available to it. Did you do anything in that process that was discriminatory? Did you exclude anybody in that process? Did you do anything that was morally wrong in that process? No, or at least it's debatable. No, you didn't, especially if you didn't know. But the likelihood that your bot is now gonna develop a toothbrushing process that's really great for six-year-old boys is extremely high and it could be horrible for 45-year-old women. This is a bad example because of toothbrushing, but you can see how that could apply to a lot of other things. And the point is that algorithms will be biased based on the information that was used to train it. If all of the breast cancer screening data that went into it was for Caucasian women, it may have a negative impact on race, race races that are not Caucasian. Or if uh, there's a really famous example of a beauty pageant that was done where uh, the, the bot basically was grading the beauty of the Africans who came into it. And, uh, and at the end of it, nine out of 10 of the beautiful women that were selected were Caucasian females. And that's because all of the training data that went into it was human generated. And it was all generated by a population that, that found that audience to be the most attractive. So the point is, I'm not trying to really debate this per se. The point is more around you don't have to be trying to accidentally propagate bias. And that's a really important aspect of how you should be thinking about uh, the risks, the, uh, you know, ethically and morally of what you're doing with generative AI. So let's paint that picture a little bit further with three specific examples. Risk of ignorance, that's one of your big risks. I like the example of the US lawyer earlier this year who got busted because he submitted all this disposition in a case that he went to ChatGPT for. He said, give me some disposition examples. And it cranked out these phenomenal disposition examples and he turned them in and it turned out they were all fake because he was ignorant and didn't know that ChatGPT was not giving him answers because ChatGPT is not a knowledge base. It's a predictor. So it wrote a really compelling story, essentially, that looked a lot like disposition and he didn't check it. That is a huge risk. The risk of ignorance is a huge risk to you in your business because if you don't understand the fundamental model and the fundamental information that trained it, you don't know what you just pulled out of it is wrong, particularly if it's a subject matter that you are not familiar with. The second is risk of confidentiality. There was a great example of this earlier in the year of some Samsung engineers 
that were tweaking code through ChatGPT and put uh, trade secrets, basically proprietary code into it, which got sucked up into the model, which was then used to train the model, which then third parties could get access to. So this comes down to there is risk to what information you feed into a model. And if you're not careful, it could get out in the world. And the third one is the risk of discrimination. There's this really famous story of, uh, of, a, uh, of um, Airbnb, where Airbnb built a model to help price, uh, competitively price and like select uh, basically people who were allowed to rent a house. And uh, all of that was trained off of humans doing training of what looked like a good profile and didn't look a profile like a good profile. And when they got done with it, they had deployed a model that made it made it made it such that people who had names that sounded African American were 16% less likely to get a positive request for a room. You know, and this is a widely documented, acknowledged, they countermeasured it and moved on, you know, over the last several years since this was published. And that's the point that nobody had to be trying, but there are inherent biases in the system that could propagate really negative consequences. The last point I'll make to close this out is, is, and I really like Ethan's point of view here, the only bad way to react to AI is to, is to pretend it doesn't change anything. There is so much opportunity we have to think about how AI should be applied and shouldn't be applied. And there's so much opportunity for we as leaders to be critically thinking about that and shape that. And there's so much good opportunity that can come from AI that, that the number one thing that we should be doing is playing a role in making those decisions. And we have to recognize that AI is here and it's coming faster and that tide is rising and we have to take action. So I really like, uh, I really like this point of view and highly encourage you to check out Ethan's uh, uh, blog. But I hope you found these questions to be insightful and helpful. And you know, just to reiterate, my main goal is to give you a set of questions for you to go to do your own thinking on, to come back and make the decision of how much do I care about this? How much should I be thinking about this? How far do I wanna go on this? But the main question, the main point of view here is <clears throat> don't, don't passively like, give up the reins to whether AI is important to you or your business or your future actively make that decision, take the time to learn about it because it's fundamentally different from any other technology that has uh, kind of showed up on our, on our doorstep to be used. And if you don't take it seriously and you don't take the time to understand it, you are putting yourself at risk of letting other people make critical decisions for you that you don't really understand the implications of. So if you found this useful, I know I did, and uh, thank you for taking the time out. We hope you have enjoyed diving into the intricate world of AI and gaining a fresh perspective on the forces that drive our interconnected world. If you found today's episode intriguing, don't forget to check out others on our website at getsignals.ai. Thank you to our speakers and listeners. Your curiosity and enthusiasm for the world of AI keeps us motivated to bring you the most engaging content. Until next time.